Welcome to the State of Developer Education, a podcast by Major League Hacking. We explore how technical leaders are creatively tackling the developer education gap to help prepare the next generation of technologists for the real world and build businesses that can adapt to any changes in the technology ecosystem. I'm your host, John Gottfried. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the State of Developer Education. I'm John, your host, and I'm here with Marcus Helberg, the VP of Developer Relations at Vauden. How's it going? Hey, John. Really good. I'm happy to be here. Happy we can make this happen. Me too. I'm really excited to uh, have you here. I always like to start all of these episodes with background from my guests. People have a lot of different paths into coding. I'd love to hear about yours. How did you start? Yeah down that road to tech. So I was kind of thinking about this a while back and think like the starting point was actually, I was maybe like 13, 14. I was at home. I was sick. I was not in school. And my mom got me this like book on building websites. And I was just kind of, it's like, oh, that looks cool. And I was just like hacking away in like notepad and like whatever Netscape back in the day. And just like, oh, that's cool. I can like change the background colors and I can do a little scripts to do something like live. And from there, it just kind of got started. I, I think in high school, I was really like into Linux distros and just messing around, not doing anything serious really, but just kind of getting more acquainted with computers on a kind of a, a, a lower level than just like clicking around. And I think I kind of stumbled into a career in tech in, in a sense that it was something I was interested in, but I got the opportunity to do like an internship at my then girlfriend's dad's job, uh, my current wife's dad's job. And that allowed me to kind of get into like, they were building enterprise Java apps like that had a web UI. And I got kind of exposed to that very early on and just like trying to figure out things as I went along, just reading like whatever head first Java book. I tried starting with a more serious book. I'm like, I don't understand what's going on. And it's like, then I found that book and I'm like, all right, well, seems pretty straightforward. And that kind of like, by the next summer, I was already like a pretty kind of solid contributor to the project and ended up even leading that project later on. So that kind of got me into the actual work of development before I even went to school for it. So when I went to university and I started taking Java courses, it was like, I was starting, kind of got the theory like after the fact, I'm like, oh, well, that makes sense. And I'm like, oh, that was something I was struggling with last week. So I, I feel like having been exposed to the kind of real world problems with programming before I started learning about the theory just gave me a way to kind of, it was kind of like a hook for that information in my brain where I like had some context for like, why is this important? Like, you know, when you go to school, like you just get fed so much information. And if it doesn't feel relevant to you, it'll just like fall out of your head. It's just as quickly as you get it in there. So I think that helped me kind of retain a lot more of that kind of information. So that was kind of my formal training. And then obviously over my career, I've just continued learning as much as possible. As you know, like the tech industry is not standing still. And if you don't keep learning pretty much continuously, you'll fall behind or just kind of miss out on a lot of cool stuff as I like to see it. Yeah, definitely. That's really cool. I started around the same time with actual programming and, you know, Java was what they taught us in high school. I had been doing PHP on the side, you know, for web development. Out of curiosity, like you started with Java, you're still doing, you know, Java ecosystem work. Obviously, the language and the frameworks and the best practices have evolved quite a bit over that span of time, but you've stuck around to that like niche. like. 
what is it about Java that, you know, kept you in that stack? Well, I'd say like I'm like with one foot in the Java ecosystem and the other in the web, like broader web ecosystem, like front end development. And that's kind of been where I've been at. And I feel like combining those two things, I've been able to kind of build and create everything that I would possibly want. So I'm no stranger to working with like front end technologies, JavaScript and TypeScript. Like these days I might spend even like more time with those than with Java certain days. But I think in general, the Java ecosystem is just kind of big enough and it's been around long enough that there are just like really good solutions to a lot of stuff. So if I want to put together something like they're really like good tried and true solutions for those things. And it's kind of just easy for me to get stuff done. Java is obviously it's getting kind of a bad rap these days, although I do see that kind of improving. So Oracle did make a change in how they release Java versions a few years back. And that's allowed the language to kind of evolve and kind of catch up to a lot of the demands people have these days and kind of expectations of languages, just whether that's from just like a developer ergonomics with different types of like streams and being able to like have saner collection APIs or doing like they're working right now on like virtual threads and being able to just be a whole lot kind of easier for like highly concurrent systems and and stuff. So there's a lot of really cool stuff happening in the Java ecosystem in the past few years. And so that's kind of been a reason for me to stick around, I guess. Yeah, it definitely does feel like it gets a undeserved bad rap. Like, obviously, it's used by a lot of really complex, powerful applications, and millions of developers are still writing Java, right? So it's it's not a dead language, but it's not a shiny new thing anymore. Yeah, it was funny. I, I think it was in a Java conference a couple of years ago. I think it was one of the kind of Spotify people who were presenting there said essentially like, you know, a startups made it when they rewrite their stuff on Java. So that's like you start out with yep. something and then when you grow up, you're like, all right, well, we actually start to have all these enterprise problems now that like, whereas it was easy to get started with this. Now we are actually in that state where Java has solved all of these problems because it's used by companies who have had these problems for years. So, yep. and I mean, like several years ago, that used to mean that you had this whole like super complex environment to deal with all of this. But I think a lot of new projects like Spring Boot and Quarkus and things have just made it much easier to get started and like taken away a lot of that like configuration and other overhead. So you can still get a lot of the benefits of using this big Java ecosystem without having to spend as much time just kind of dealing with all the configuration and and kind of overhead that used to be there a few years ago. One of my favorite like weird Java anecdotes is that it's kind of unclear whether this is the first or the second usage of it, but the term hackathon came from a Java conference in the mid 90s. Mm -hmm. Like they coined that term for what I believe at that point was more of an open source sprint. But you know, when you look back and like try to find that and obviously like MLH does tons of hackathons. So I've always been curious about the history of that format. It always comes up that it came from this like Java one conference in like 1995 or six. Yeah. Awesome. Did not know that. I've been yeah. to the conference a bunch of times, but didn't know that. There you go. A little history lesson for the day. So when I was looking at your background and doing some research before coming into this, I noticed that you have at this point spent, you know, the majority of your career at Vaadin, but you've been in like so many different roles. You know, a lot of developers I talk to like 
really like focus in, like, I'm going to go on the software engineer career track and become a senior and then maybe a manager and like a director, but you seem yeah. to have jumped around and touched a lot of different disciplines. Yeah. What, what has that been like? And like, what have you learned from that process? Yeah. So I, I think as a person, I'm generally like very curious and I like to learn and try new things. And it wasn't like immediately clear to me out of school, like, what do I even want to do? So one of the great things about like, starting in a smaller company that's been growing is that I've been able to try out different things. So I joined the company as a software developer, did that for a while, started leading projects and kind of bigger and bigger projects. And and this was back in Finland, Vodden as a Finnish company. I was born in the US. My parents were working here at the time and, and I had the US passport. I was like, I want to go and work there, kind of take advantage of this. So I was lobbying them to open up an office here. And then a while later, they said like, yeah, we're doing it. Like, you want to go in? And it's like, yes, I definitely want to go. So I moved to California, I think like 10 years ago now to just help set up the operations. And back then, even like the whole company was small, but the US office was literally just me and one of the founders. So it was just like, we wore all the hats that needed to be <laughs> worn to get stuff done. So like I do sales engineering to kind of help close a thing that I'd do the delivery of it. I would go to customers and do trainings on site. I would basically do whatever would kind of was needed. I'd go to events and and talk about Vodden and and do all kinds of stuff. So it was like I got exposed to all these different areas of of the business. And after a while he had to move back to Finland and I was like out of necessity. I took over sales for all in North America for a while. It was a really good learning experience in that I have a much deeper appreciation for sales than I perhaps had before, but also I had the kind of realization that it's not like the thing for me. I very much enjoy the tech side of things. And the other thing that I kind of realized was that a lot of developers really like Vaadin when they see it, but very few have ever heard of it. So I felt like, well, what I could probably have a much kind of bigger positive impact in is kind of moving over to marketing and doing what we today call DevRel. We didn't have really like a word that was just kind of how we did marketing back in the day, but kind of move into that role where I could kind of go and speak to developers, create content to help people kind of learn about how Vaadin works and, and kind of get exposed to it in that way. Kind of whenever people get into it, then obviously uh, selling something to them further down the road is, is much easier. So salespeople and developers have this like, almost like apocryphal tension between them, right? Like if you ask the average developer, like, do you want to be sold to or do you like interacting with salespeople? Usually yeah. the answer is no, right? Yeah. What was your experience selling like such a technical product? Like obviously you came out of it not wanting that to be the focus of your career, but I'm curious like what the actual like experience itself was like being in sales. Yeah. When you had a I, I think I, I probably had a, kind of a different experience than many people in, in sales just because of our product being open source. And back then, really, most of our kind of what we were selling was consultancy and kind of just services on top of it. And it much of it was really like people had found our product. They had kind of already sold themselves on the idea that they wanted to use it. And they just kind of got in touch with us to get help with doing that. So it was in that sense, it was more natural. Like it was really like figuring out, well, how could we best help you with this problem as opposed to like doing a whole bunch of like cold calling and that kind of work, which I don't think would have been as easy. So I think it was like, it did help me that I was able to like talk, speak both with the like architects and like 
lead developers and the business people. And it also kind of gave me a lot of insights into like what's actually like important in a good product. It's not just the bits that are in there, but there's a lot of like when you get up to like, or you start looking at what all goes into that decision to take a new or kind of a new tool into use. There's a lot more than just the actual tool that goes into that. Like, is the company behind it like reliable? Can we expect them to actually support us using this? Like, how easy can we find developers who can work with this tool? And what's the support like? What's the like all kinds of other stuff that you don't like necessarily as a developer? Like think about when you're initially just like, oh, this is like a shiny, cool new tool that I want to try out. And like, before you can sell that idea to your like boss or boss's boss to like actually get that into a project, there are a lot of like other questions you have to be able to answer. Yeah, absolutely. Did you have to manage like a sales team? Did you have other people? No, I did not. So I, I didn't really move into a management role until I was in, in Devrel. And I mean, that's been another kind of just interesting learning experience, just kind of, it took me a while to realize that leadership is also a skill that you can learn. It's like somehow in popular culture, it's really like you're either a lead, you're born a leader or you're not. Whereas like after a while, it's like, well, it's a skill you can develop like many other skills. So just been a, also like a really interesting just area to learn and improve in as well. Yeah. I've found it to be one of the more difficult skills to learn because there's a lot riding on your successes or failures, right? Like if you merge a bad pull request, it's not the end of the world. If you mismanage someone or make a bad hire, that has a lot more negative implications. Yeah. And and I think like in pretty much any organization, not just the leadership, but just like having good communication skills is yeah. super important because a lot of times, especially like what we do in DevRel, it's not only do we create like content to help people find Vaadin, but we spend a lot of time talking to people in the community, kind of understanding what works for them, what doesn't work for them, what's confusing, and take this information and go to the products and engineering teams and and try to convince them to do something about it. And like the way we communicate that and kind of highlight what's important and stuff does make a big difference and like how likely it is we can convince them to do something about it. So even just like that kind of like, yeah, learning those types of soft skills, if you will, is really important, I think, especially as you're progressing through your career, even if you're not getting into like management, just to be able to kind of have bigger influence in your job. Yeah, I completely agree. So you kind of made the the gradual march to DevRel, right? And it, you know, it sounds like the realization was that it was an area where you could have a lot of impact based on where Vaadin was as a product and as a sort of brand, right? Like you mentioned that people really liked it when they heard about it, but not everyone had heard about it, right? And DevRel was yeah. a way to address that problem. Like when you think about DevRel, like obviously you have your open source, you know, product, which is sort of the core of Vaadin from what I can tell. And you have your yeah. commercial offering. How does DevRel differ when you're talking about your customers versus just open source community? I think that's a good kind of, topic to discuss and also like internally just clarify is like how does customers and community kind of what is their relationship the way i like to look at it is that i see the customers as a a kind of a segment of our community they're like a core part of it so because we have a very technical product where it's used by developers and improvements that we do to the product will help paying and non-paying customers for the most part and we see paying customers are active in our open source community. And like, so they're like a very tightly integrated group, but they might just have like some more 
kind of enterprise requirements, whether that's then kind of support or extended warranties or kind of whatever that might be. So to me, like they are an important part of the community and we do try to kind of make sure that we also spend time talking with them to understand their issues because there is just out of, or there is a difference in kind of the types of problems people might be solving with VOD and if it's like a hobby project that they're working on versus if it's their job. So what we see a lot of enterprise projects or people in enterprises struggling with is they're trying to say modernize a very old application and for them say moving to a later version of Java can be very challenging. I, I just met with a customer not too long ago and, and they had this software with like a 20 year history and for them upgrading to the later version of Java essentially meant that they had to go through manually all these different dependencies and trying to figure out, well, what do they do? Do they still work? Is that maintained? And, and like that in itself is like a huge kind of time sink. Whereas a hobby developer, like they have no problem for the most part to use the latest and greatest of everything. So it gives you a good perspective into like the different types of problems and situations people are working in. So we try to kind of keep them also very tightly in this loop of people that we are kind of communicate with. When you think about like hobby developers, one of the things that a lot of DevRel teams struggle with is quantifying their impact and value, right? Because oftentimes, you know, if you're giving a talk at a conference, there's no guarantee that any of those people are buyers, right? Like they can all be hobby. Like, how do you think about the value of, you know, hobbyists and community members who aren't giving you any money? Well, the way I like to see it is one of of the guys on my team has, I think, put this really well as like those, the kind of hobbyists and the people who aren't paying us with their money, they're paying us with their time. They're contributing to the community by helping others on Discord or Stack Overflow. They might be contributing pull requests or bug issue tickets or any number of other things. They might kind of recommend this framework to somebody else. So there's a lot of value a community member could be providing besides just like straight up handing us money. Mm -hmm. And you never know, like these chains can be pretty kind of long and hard to measure, as you mentioned. I've had many times people come to me at conferences saying like, I met you like three years ago at this conference and it looked really cool. And now we're actually starting a new project and I'm starting to look into using Vodin. So it's like, it's, DevRel is a really long game. You're sowing seeds for like the upcoming years. It's really hard to say like, hey, we're going to do something now in quarter one that's going to like have sales impact in quarter one. That's marketing essentially. So it's a little bit different in that way. So it's hard to measure as, as you said, we do use kind of, we do follow kind of monthly active users as a type of North star metric, because everything that we do in one way or another should help kind of increase that metric, whether it's through us doing awareness work that helps new people find Vodin or because we're listening to community members and trying to get fixes in, which should increase retention over time conceivably. The challenge, of course, with that is that we're by no means the only team that affects monthly active users. It's a really kind of multi-variate metric in that it's like product quality, documentation quality, awareness, marketing, like all, even like customer success ties into that, like how long people stick around. So it's a good measure still to kind of tie all these efforts into one number. And then you have to look at some like leading indicators to try to get a better sense of like how different parts of of that work. How do you actually track that effectively for open source? Like obviously 
you know, GitHub has some analytics tools. I'm sure you guys have, what is it, like Maven, right, is the, the Java package manager? Yeah. How, yeah like, so how we, do you know what people are doing with it when they just, you know, add it to a random project? So, yeah, of course, we can kind of look at download statistics for the project and then, like, the development tools collect usage statistics unless people opt out of it. Yeah. So that gives us a little bit more insight into like what specific kind of components, for instance, somebody is using. But for the most part, we are more interested in just understanding like how many new people are starting to use it. How long do they stick around? Like looking at new users retention. And yeah, so I think those are kind of the bigger things there. And that kind of allows us to then focus in on what we think might be an issue. And, and again, these like the solution may not sit in DevRel like it might be that we need to address something in the in the product for instance to get it solved but i think it's helpful to have one kind of one team that looks after this number and just kind of owns it and kind of if something were to like look bad or not go in the right direction you can then take action on it yeah makes sense for your third party like community members right you mentioned a lot of the ways that they're engaged with Bonnie. Now they're answering questions yeah. on Stack Overflow. Maybe they're submitting pull requests. Maybe they're opening issues. Like there's all these different things that they do to help improve the overall like product and ecosystem. How do you sort of like align their efforts with that goal, right? Because obviously a generic community member is working towards their own end, whether that's improving you know a particular use case or doing their own thing for some fun reason, like. Mm-hmm. How do you actually like align that with what you're trying to achieve? And does that even matter? I would like to think that it matters. Like there's a lot of kind of insights to be gained from just understanding how people are using it or rather like what they're trying to accomplish with our tool and how well our tool is, is kind of aligned for that. I also like to just kind of clarify that when we're talking about open source users for Vaadin, they're not necessarily like all hobbyists. They're like serious businesses using just the open source version as well. and kind of get yeah getting that kind of feedback from them from their use and understanding like where are the kind of gaps or like where are the opportunities for us to improve the product is super valuable this is something where we've tried to improve especially recently just kind of bring more clarity into like what we propose to be on the roadmap and we have like github discussions for some proposed features or kind of areas where we're thinking about doing something but we definitely want to kind of include more of the community in that discussion to just understand that we are focusing on things that not only we think are important, but also they think are important because they're essentially going to be the end users there. That's really cool. I actually like that approach a lot. I feel like a lot of open source projects, especially those run by companies, struggle with that road mapping component, right? Like how much yeah. is proprietary, how much of it is public? Yeah, and I'm not going to lie and say, like, we've got this figured out, but it's something that we're kind of mindful of and and are trying to kind of include people in because it's like, it feels like it's an untapped resource if you don't include this big community of people. Like, I think any product organization would say, like, actually getting that, like, real user insight and, and feedback validation to what you're doing is super valuable. And if you have this community of thousands and thousands of people who could provide value and you're not asking them, I think... You're kind of leaving something very valuable untapped at that point. Yeah, totally. It's kind of funny because like when you're talking about a SaaS product or a consumer product, like that's a product manager's dream is to get engaged users, giving them real feedback. And like 
developers are notorious for giving candid feedback on, on what they think. Yeah. And, you know, it's almost like a double-edged sword of like, they will tell you what they think, right? Like they will tell you what they need and want and are looking mm-hmm. for your product. And it's up to you to kind of parse that and look for patterns. Yeah, I think that's a good, very kind of important realization too, is like looking at the big picture and the patterns, not just listening to the loudest voices, because like you said, people will try to solve their own problems and sometimes they can be very vocal about how they think something should be fixed whereas like in the big picture scheme like that might not be a very common use case or the approach doesn't make sense for a whole lot of other people so keeping that in mind as well but i think it is super valuable to to be able to listen to that wider community and and kind of gaining insights from them so when you think about that community and obviously you know you mentioned it's both commercial users and hobbyists how do you sort of approach content and docs and educational materials for them? We don't really differentiate between like paying users or, or open source users sure, when yeah. it comes to that. We essentially, yeah, I guess a lot of our content is very kind of educational in that it's mm-hmm. it's on the documentation site or on the blog tutorial type of thing, especially if we're talking about like DevRel type of content. Of course, we have like pure marketing content that lives on kind of the login on the website, but we tend to try to create content that's kind of useful for developers. Often we try to focus on topics that are useful for a wider audience than just us. So like maybe talk about how to solve a problem in Java where we just happen to kind of be one part of that solution so that we, obviously from an awareness standpoint, that's that's helpful because more people get exposed to us, but also that way we can help a wider community than just our own when we're creating this content. Yeah. What do you look for when you're doing like content design and quality control? Like what makes a good piece of developer content? Well, I think here again, the community is a good source of inspiration. So especially like our discord chat is a good source of like looking again at those patterns. Like what are people constantly asking about that's a, well, that's probably a good, like that's a good indication that something should be done then we need to determine like, is that a fix in the product? Is that like something that's unclear in the documentation? Or is it just like a fairly one-off thing, but really interesting to a small group of people that could be turned into, say, a tutorial on the blog, for instance. Then also just kind of staying tuned to what's happening in the wider market. If there's like a new version of another kind of complementary tool that comes out, maybe creating content on how to leverage some of those new features or anything around that so i think those are some of the kind of biggest sources of inspiration that we draw from what about like an individual piece of content like let's say you're writing a new tutorial or Mm -hmm. documenting a new piece of the product like what do you do to to make that really good it's a good question obviously try to make everything good by default that we do but we do internally like not only write it but we'll have people kind of read through it and try it to make sure that it actually does the thing that we're claiming it to do and then and then kind of listen for feedback that we get on it so whether that's comments on the thing itself or like social media people are are talking about it and pointing out like i think the best way of getting the correct answer to anything is post something incorrect on the internet and just wait for people to tell you what you did wrong (laughs) how do you make sure that your like technical content stays up to date like i know a lot of several orgs struggle with like the versioning of things like tutorials or docs. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. This is another kind of area we're trying to figure out a good solution. What we've like, what me and the the docs lead 
have kind of come to an understanding about right now is that we're going to have kind of two tiers of tutorials. The kind of official tutorials are just a very small subset that we tie to the actual product release cadence and they go through like a more rigorous update anytime a new version comes out just to ensure that the core tutorials are definitely up to date. And then the other tutorials are essentially just clearly marked that this tutorial for this version of of the product and it was published at this time so if people find it three years later they don't have the kind of built-in assumption that it probably is up to date and then then what you have to kind of add on to that is follow up on just looking at how well the content is performing so if something is outdated and getting a lot of traffic that's a good signal for us to go and update that or if it's getting a lot of comments saying like, hey, this thing isn't working, that's another good signal. That way we don't kind of build a, or have like an inbuilt expectation that everything that we ever create will always be updated to the latest version because that would essentially very quickly grind us to halt, like where we couldn't create anything new because we'd just be updating stuff that we've done in the past. Yep. So we're trying to kind of find a balance there where we have like a core tutorials that are always ensured to be up to date with the latest version then like just keep an eye on on the rest understand like which are the kind of important tutorials that may be outdated and need to get updated and then we'll refresh those yeah i mean sometimes i'm pleasantly surprised that the tutorial i find is using like the same outdated version of a library that i'm using for some arbitrary <laughs> reason sometimes that's nice yeah, for sure. It's definitely something you hear from a lot of Darvel folks. It's just like, it's easy enough to like start creating content, but then like a year later, two years later, you're like, well, now like I'm getting so many messages from people saying like, this is outdated and that's outdated. And like, what do you do with all of this? Yep. So I still get Twitter mention like maybe once or twice a year about a post that I wrote on Twilio's blog like 10 plus years ago that I'm sure they haven't <laughs> updated since, but like, it's people still like reach out to me and be like, hey, like, does this thing still work? Like, can you help me with this? And I'm like, I have no idea. I haven't touched it in a decade, <laughs> but I hope it works, you know? Oh, man, that's funny. Yeah, people have a way of finding that stuff. So I want to switch gears a little bit to a different kind of content we touched mm -hmm. on earlier. You mentioned that you've done a good amount of speaking about VODing, right? And yeah. you know, that could imply meetups, conferences, like hackathons, whatever else. Have you been doing those both virtually and in person? I have, yeah. It seems like we're in a kind of a weird, I don't know, like transitionary phase right now where we still have some virtual events. We still have in-person events. Some are even hybrid. Like, yeah. what have you found the differences to be between those different styles from, from like a DevRel perspective, like just delivering and, and engaging an audience? I think the virtual events aren't, really all that different from just publishing on youtube to be honest like the much of the value i find in going to an event is from all the discussions that happen outside of the actual talk so you have you'll have the talk and and then you kind of a group of folks will end up hanging around there asking questions you take out the laptop you hack on stuff together and you miss out on all of that so i think the challenge with online events has been that people are super busy they have that live stream open in a window on their second monitor behind another tab and they're doing their emails and like then they'll log off right when it ends and it's not really engaging in the same way 
But I mean, the flip side is that it does make this content and these events accessible to just a much wider audience that could never attend them otherwise. So I think that's a really good aspect of it that we shouldn't lose and that we should try to figure out, well, how can we make that kind of experience better for people? who are joining remotely. So I, I don't have an answer for that, but like I, I hope that's something that we keep around and, and try to figure out how do we make these events more accessible to a bigger group of people. Like you said, you're working with a lot of people who are just out of school and whatnot. They might not have $2,000 to spend on a conference ticket and plus flights and hotels and whatnot. So like if they can still kind of tap into that and get information, that's great. Like even if it's only like 80% as valuable as being in person, it's still a whole lot more than not being able to attend at all. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think it's interesting because I think different people are looking for different things out of a conference. Like for some people, like maybe it's the one night they have free and it's like, hey, I just want to see this talk and they can't dedicate it two or three days to something. And you know, that might be just as valuable for them as the hallway track is for me. And it's yeah. I feel like I've learned a lot about different use cases for conferences by like trying mm-hmm. these different virtual and in-person formats. Like I had a, a very specific perspective at going into it, but I've come out of it similar to you where it's like, okay, this opens it up a lot, even if you miss some of the serendipity. Yeah, for sure. So when you think about like education and your own journey getting into tech, what would you change about how developers learn today? I think that's one thing that's going to be hard for me to say, like on a general level, just because I've been... <laughs> at the same place for so long. But I think one important aspect is to just make sure that there is kind of the time and place to continuously learn, like as you're working. So just making sure that there is kind of both time and budget, hopefully allocated to keeping people learning all all the time. It's kind of easy to just get stuck in, in a project, just focusing in on that one stack for, for a long time. And then when you poke your head up again, you're like, wait, what, what happened? Like, What's all this new stuff? And so I think that's certainly like an important thing because I realize like it's obviously good if people have the energy and time and ability to learn like outside of work. But obviously a lot of people are really busy. They have families, they have other obligations. So they might not be able to spend like a lot of their free time just kind of trying to keep up on on things happening in the tech industry. So I, I think it is important for kind of employees to offer some sort of way to kind of learn in as you're working. Yeah, definitely. I also feel like there's like maybe like a hidden learning that I heard from you earlier where you had started to get some hands-on experience before going to university. Yeah. Um, Often that's like a real tension for people where computer science is their first exposure and they don't have a lot of hands-on experience. You know, certainly I would like to see more of a balance there, right? That's like similar to, to your path, but, you know, perhaps integrated into actual curriculums. Yeah. I think we see this a little bit with like boot camps where like the time period is so short that like the amount of theory is not that great. Like it's it's more practice than theory. And I mean that it's a good start. You you get productive and like if you're curious, <laughs> you'll start picking up like the the theory as, as you go. And, and and that's been kind of really fun to see. I don't remember seeing a lot of like boot camps back then, <laughs> like that does, but it is like I think another path where you can kind of learn the basics just enough to kind of get started and then keep learning as you're working. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of a balance, right? You need a good mix of the two different things. Yeah. Cool. Because I, I think you can definitely go to like school and learn all of the theory about computer science and not be a very great 
programmer either so it's like yeah. so and also i think something like that will tell you very quickly like is this something even like <laughs> like yeah. do you enjoy do you enjoy development work at all yeah i also think there's like an interesting like do i like development for development's sake like do i like the theory and science of it or do i just want to build something to satisfy a use case you know i think it can yeah. be a means to an end as much as it can be like the focus yeah, and I think like the computer science curriculum in a lot of places can scare away a lot of people who would be great programmers just because it's very focused on theory and like abstract theory and algorithms and stuff that like they're good to know. But like, honestly, when you're building most apps, like if you know how to like multiply stuff and add things here, you're pretty, pretty good. Like, yeah, like yep. you, you can get by with not knowing all of that. Obviously, it's very good if you do, but like I think it can scare away a lot of people who might otherwise end up being pretty good programmers just because they're they like building stuff and they're curious learners. So, yeah, absolutely. Cool, man. Well, I really enjoyed this. I always like to finish on sort of this fun like question Is there anyone in like tech or DevRel or the wider world who you've never met but would love to just like spend a couple hours with, like take them to lunch, pick their brain? I've heard everything from like authors to founders to dead scientists. Like, <laughs> who do you aspire to like meet and spend some time with? I don't know. I feel like I'm in a pretty lucky position where I've had a chance to like actually meet a lot of a lot of the peoples that I that I look up to. Like one of my really favorite like people in DevRel in general is Josh Long from the Spring team. He's just like this powerhouse of like DevRel. He, I don't understand how he's able to stay that productive. Like for like year in year out and i actually did have a chance to hang out with him a couple of weeks ago and have lunch and hack on some stuff together so that was that was really awesome that's really cool oh man well um thank you so much for your time really enjoyed this people want to find you afterwards any websites twitter handles mastodon yeah handles you want to call out yeah just at marcus helberg on most of the things i don't remember exactly which mastodon server i'm on but you can find me there, I'm sure. <laughs> Google will be your friend there. Sounds good. Well, thank you again. If you all enjoyed listening, definitely you know like and subscribe and follow along for more episodes. But really enjoyed this one and uh, happy hacking. All right, thanks. The State of Developer Education is brought to you by Major League Hacking. To find out more about Major League Hacking and how we're educating the next generation of developers and helping the world's leading companies reach them, visit sponsor.mlh.io. And make sure to search for developer education in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen, and click like and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you like it, please don't forget to leave a review, and we'll give you a shout out on a future podcast. On behalf of the team here at Major League Hacking, thanks for listening and helping us empower the next generation of technologists. Happy hacking! Thank <laughs> you.